Hello, my name is Bill Templeman. You are going to now hear a brief interview with author and theater artist Kate Story, followed by a reading from her latest novel, Urchin, published by Running the Goat Books and Broadsides in October 2021. Now, Urchin has been listed in the Globe and Mail's Children's Book Gift Guide. The CBC ranks it in the 2022 Canadian Young Adult Books to Watch Out For. Kirkus Reviews calls it a sprawling, lyrical, historical fantasy. And just a few weeks ago, the Association for Canadian Publishers Children's Committee selected Urchin for Hamlet in the Classroom. Kate, could you explain a bit more what that's about? Sure, Bill. I'll do my best. Yeah. So the Canadian, the Association of Canadian Publishers Children Committee, every year they, they look at what's coming out with Canadian publishers with an eye to what might do well in schools. So to be selected as one of their young adult titles is such an honor. And what both myself and my publisher, Marnie Parsons, are really, what we would love to see is for this to be picked up by a school board and, and end up in a classroom somewhere. Just it gets the book out to so many more people. And I look forward with some delight to the idea of being like despised and hated as I hated some of the books I was forced to read when I was in school. But hopefully, <laughs> hopefully people would enjoy it. That would be better. Yes. But yeah, just to be selected is such an honor. And uh, certainly what I've been hoping is like I've been asking and they have my educator friends. I've been asking them to share it, spread the word that this has been selected um, as, a, as, as a young adult title. That would be great to, to teach. That's great. So I'm going to begin by asking you that question that in Canon Rage writers, because it forces them to reduce years of their creative lives into one or two sentences. It is a mean, unkind question, I acknowledge, but it's the question that so many readers first ask when they hear about a new book. So here goes. So, Kate, now what is your book all about? I'm terrible at answering that question. You know, I know there are writers out there who who say they give advice and possibly they even follow their own advice, which is that you should even write your elevator pitch for your book before you even start writing the book. And I admire those people. That's great. I'm not good at it. Uh, what I will say is this. It, it, it really was a commission from the publisher, and uh, I've never had one before, and I would adore to get more because, you know, I think in common with many artists, the m- more restrictions you give me, the more room I have. You know, I actually really like a restriction. So Marnie of uh, Running the Goat, we know each other from the past, or quite far back in the past. I first met her. She was brought on as an editor for my very first novel, Blasted, by then publisher doesn't exist anymore. Um, and so Killick hired her to be my mar- my editor, and she was just wonderful to work with. And then I found out she was from Leamington, Ontario, originally, tomato capital of maybe the world, but certainly of Canada. Right. And another dear friend of mine is from there as well, Curtis Dreger, local fabulous musician and gentleman about town. So I just adored Marnie from the beginning. She's just wonderful. And she's one of these people. She's a mainlander who moved to Newfoundland. And and then obviously, immediately upon arriving, it was her spiritual home. She was always meant to be there. She's done more for the province than, you know, a bunch of us actual born and raised Newfoundlanders put together in a room, you know, like she's just a wonderful human being. So she, I was so honored when she approached me. And here's what she said. Here's the answer to your question. She said, I'm looking for a young adult, historical, set in Newfoundland, with fairies. <laughs> so there you go. That's, that's, right. that, was, that was the assignment. 
So that's that's pretty much what it is. So I was uh, able to, obviously, within that, I had complete creative leeway. So then the slightly longer answer is that it's set in 1901 in St. John's, Newfoundland. And there's a young person whose given name is Dor, short for Dorothea. And this, uh, she, and I'm going to, we'll talk about pronouns later, right, Bill? Yes. are important in this in this yes, anyway, yes. she gets wind of the fact that this person marconi is coming to st john's and you know ostensibly to set up ship to shore communications but her friend murph who's an adult is a journalist and he has an idea that there's something more going on and you don't have to scratch the surface very far to see that that marconi is pulling the wool over the eyes of the newfoundland government and there is indeed more going on and so then door becomes a spy so that she can help Murph, her friend, the journalist friend, find out what's going on. Uh, oh. Really, what what is his real mission there? And this Perfect. is based in real history because, of course, Marconi is a real person, was a real person. Perfect. He was Italian uh, on his father's side, and his mother was Anglo-Irish of the Jameson Whiskey uh, dynasty. And he sent the first, he received the first transatlantic radio signal in St. John's in 1901. So that's that's the piece of history around the stuff revolves. Right. Okay. Well, thank you. Now, who is your book for in terms of a reading audience? Yeah, this is going to sound like a bit of a pat answer, but twelve to one hundred and twelve, Bill. Twelve to one hundred and twelve. Yeah. I saw that, and it's wonderful because um, I, I think those of us late late in our reading careers tend to say look down on uh, young adult fiction and say. Oh, well, that's, you know, that's for kids, whereas they can be utterly engrossing stories. And uh, as you say, like dealing with her very, very adult themes, dealing with history. Yeah. Oh, yes. You know that, I mean, YA is a category invented by the publishing industry. You know, of course, there's always been stories. That, books. <laughs> yeah. Well, and like, you know, the idea like, like, you know, I think you and I probably grew up with the idea that fairy tales were for children. But then quite quickly, I mean, you don't have to do much. Yeah, folkloric yeah. Or, or Freudian analysis to see that fairy tales, you know, were in fact folk tales that were told among adults and children would just listen, you know? Yeah. I was always a kid, like, because I was a kid in the 70s, you know, the shelves were not curated by my parents and I could read whatever I wanted. And, you yeah. know, there was nothing that did me any real harm, I think, with the exception, I think I read some books that psychologically were a little on the tricky side. You know, that, that disturbed me because people were being psychologically cruel to each other. And, and that yeah. bothered me. You know, violence or sex, I just would skip over the, those parts. I was like, ah, I don't want to read about sex, man. You know, and I'd just yeah. skip over it. It didn't do me any harm. If I didn't know what the words were, it didn't bother me either. Right. Uh, I would ask or I would just get it from context or, or form a completely incorrect idea. So I feel like when I say 12 to 112, I mean it. You know, I think there's yeah, yeah. a certain kind of person likes this kind of book, and it doesn't really matter how old they are. Now, what about the title, Urchin? Why Urchin? Well, now, I had to credit my dear friend and, and amazing poet and performer, uh, Charlie Petch, with that title. Charlie, Charlie has a lot of, wears a lot of hats. Charlie, uh, musician and spoken word artist, but also a poet. And, and I asked Charlie to read the book for me. Charlie is also a trans person, and I really wanted that perspective. I'm genderqueer. The label that I feel expresses who and what I am the best. And these things are, for me anyway, kind of fluid, I have to say. Like, if I'd had the label genderqueer earlier in my life, I think I would have been probably a great deal happier. Uh, I'm really grateful for all the, the pioneering work that trans people have done 
uh, to open up talk around gender and identity and sexuality is just really uh, those 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 trailblazers. Um, you know, I can't give them enough respect. But for me, not being a trans person, I wanted to make sure that this was going to read all right for trans youth um, and that I wasn't going to make some inadvertent errors that would be you don't want to be a reader reading something and thinking you identify, you know, especially as a young person, but even as an older person, you think you identify and then suddenly you don't, you know, like, yes. like reading a book, I know, you know, a parallel for me, I'm reading a book and I'm loving this main character. And then out of the blue, from my perspective, maybe because I'm a naive, they'd say something really racist or sexist, you know, like, and then I'm like, oh, no, I don't like you, you know, like, yeah, 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 yeah. to do. Yeah. So I, I really wanted to make sure that I wasn't striking some, some sour notes for, uh, for trans youth. And Charlie also, you know, much more helpful than than a narrow lens on this thing, being also such an incredibly uh, intelligent and creative, wonderful person, you know, helped me play around like what title, what title and suggested urchin. And urchin is a great word. It's a good word because it's it's quite period, you know, like like you little urchin isn't something you hear very often anymore. It's very kind of nice. fashioned. But it was something generally applied to little boys and even before I knew that door was what we would now call maybe genderqueer, maybe trans, maybe a lesbian, you know, the, all these different labels. Uh, door, of course, considers uh, themselves in a different light, but uh, being being yeah, of the period. But already I'd, I'd written several scenes where irritated adults called door an urchin. And when I realized, like, ah, that would normally be applied to boys, I was like, this is perfect because door is right. already reading in my imagination, even before I uh, had fully fleshed out who and what door might be as, as a, as a little boy. And I thought, this is great. This is kind of uh, interesting. Sure. Or also sea urchins. I'm fascinated by them. I've always been obsessed with them. You know, you, you, they, I, you know, growing up in Newfoundland, you know, we'd go to the beach. Uh, and when I say beach, I do have to clarify mostly. And there are some sandy beaches, but mostly it's rocks and, and yeah. cliffs. Like it's not like, yeah, it's- <laughs> Yeah. yeah. So the sea urchins, the little shells would come up and, and I'd, I'd see them alive sometimes in tidal pools. But I just collected all those beautiful green domes with these elaborate but very regular patterns. Um, they're just such beautiful uh, little little creatures. And uh, you can't tell if a sea urchin is male, female or what it is when you look at it. I mean, I think. You know, you have to look oh, as yeah, well yeah, inside, yeah. right? But so I just thought in so many levels, it worked like both from a sea creature level and from a gender perspective as well. Oh, neat. Now, I, I, one of my questions was going to be about door and about uh, the gender roles that were pre- prescribed for her by the society in which you find yourself. But, uh, you know, and I ha- have a, for example, question, what pronouns would door have you? Well, you know. <laughs> Dor would have said she, I'm she, her, because of the period. Though it's possible to, I, this uh, Dor, I don't feel like this would be Dor, but I feel like there, we know there were people who lived their true lives, but they had to hide, right? So we know there were women who, who passed as men, dressed as men, were men, uh, and, and accepted by society. And there were, there were some very, very, uh, severe, punishments for for people who you know assigned at birth male female who 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 tried to live their true selves in the past and and currently now in <laughs> all over the world there's still really 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 horrifying um consequences for people who are caught who are doing that my sense about door i was really inspired by a lot of research i did for a play that i've been working on um over the last 
three years, I guess, about the Baroness Elsa von Freytag Loring Hoven, uh, who was a German who ended up in New York City uh, around the time of World War One, and the, the kind of uh, people she associated with there. And there, there was this couple, Margaret Anderson and Jane Heap, and they ran the Little Review, which is the first place Ulysses was ever published. Nobody would touch it. And they published <laughs> James Joyce's Ulysses. They published uh, The Baroness. They published, I think Ezra Pound was one of their editors at large. So was Hemingway. These women were incredible. And Margaret was maybe a little femier. Like she would certainly dress up and put on lipstick when she needed to go talk to rich patrons to try to get funding for the magazine, which was just a chronic problem. They never had any money. Yeah. Um, Jane wore men's clothes. And she goes up, Jane. She wore men's clothing but lipstick. But she would like she really was masculine. She chopped wood. She she was like she wore the pants for sure. So I thought a lot about Jane. And I, I think that is kind of more the on the I guess I'll use the word spectrum, gender spectrum, where Doris is like somebody who like Jane Heap, who I just can't uh, imagine the courage that she had. I mean, she, you know, these these were people who were thrown in jail on a regular basis for quote, unquote, indecency for wearing men's clothes in public. Uh, and she would do that, you know, she yeah. would do that. And, and, uh, cause that's who she was. And so I think for me, Dor probably would have said she, her, but worn men's clothing. So by the time, and right. I think her close friends and her lover would call her Jack. Right. Jack is yeah. really who she is. So right. I think it's this area of play and tide, a tide, like it's like the tidal pools again. It's like this land wash state of, of gender and sexuality is where people in that society at that time who weren't just uncomplicatedly cis, you know, male, female yeah. Yeah. would, would find a place that was comfortable for them. And my sense is that door would probably go by she, her, but call herself Jack as an adult. Now I uh, haven't been to Newfoundland. One of my, my, I've never been there. I, I've read a few books and I read Colony of Unquieted Dreams by Wayne Johnson. But uh, So I have a very sketchy knowledge of the history and the culture. So for listeners, I guess like me, who don't know much about Newfoundland, what should we understand in terms of history and context before reading her? Hmm. Well, hopefully you could pick it up even if you don't do any research before you get into it. I think the main thing I would say is Newfoundland was its own country. A lot of people don't know that. Newfoundland at that point was, was, it was a dominion. Yes. But we had our own prime minister. We had our own stamps. We had our own money. We had our own flag. We, well, we didn't actually. We had the British flag at that point. Right. But we were, we, there was a lot of nationalism and still is. And, mm-hmm. and Newfoundland, partly because of geography, and codfish was still important at that point as a source of food, a food source, Newfoundland had a lot of pride in itself and, and a lot of promise. I mean, if you were a middle class or or wealthy person in St. John's, you thought a lot of yourself as a Newfoundlander at that period. There was a lot mm-hmm. of pride and sense that you were a player on the world stage. You know, you weren't some, you know, there's, the Newfie joke had yet to be freaking invented, thank goodness. Mm-hmm. So there wasn't the sense that, oh, we're not good enough. We're no good, you know? Right. So, so it was an important place. Sir Sanford Fleming, who a lot of Peterborough people uh, will, will uh, that's a name that's familiar to us here, right? So he actually was hired by the Newfoundland government to, uh, to survey the first route for the Newfoundland Railway. And then the government ignored him because it didn't go through enough communities. And they had to, of course, appease <laughs> their constituents who wanted the railway to go through, you know. But he picked a, a route that went direct from St. John's. 
and then quite directly along the south coast and then think, I can't remember where the terminus was going to be, but on the sort of southwest coast, I think. Because to him, it was like, you're going to take the boat from Europe to St. John's, then take this this train, will fast track you, and then you'll be practically in New York City. Uh-huh. So, you know, this yeah, is right, 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 right. Newfoundland as, as a kind of very important geographical location on the world stage. And I mean, that was still true in World War II when, you know, the United States uh, ran all these army bases and, and air bases on, on, on the island. So it is geographically important. <laughs> you know, we have an international oh. airport in Gander because uh, it's not so necessary now, but fuel limits used to mean that international flights landed in Gander all the time. Well, 9-11, that's right. That's right. Rerouted. See? Sure, sure. It's useful to be stuck out in the middle of the North Atlantic. So I would say, you know, you want to know, you want to know about that sense of independence, pride. We were our own country. We had our own relationship to Marconi when he arrived. You know, we weren't Canada. We weren't the United States. We weren't England. But we were a dominion, but we were our own place with our own uh, history and way of doing things. Great. Okay. Now, uh, we're going to hear an excerpt from the book in just a moment. To set that up, uh, what do listeners have to understand in terms of the context of the excerpt you're going to read before we start? Uh, I would say I'm going to read like uh, an excerpt from near the beginning, which which sets up the whole uh, Marconi thread. Okay. Um, so what you need to know, uh, I already mentioned Murph. So Murph is her adult friend. Dora's about 12 or 13. Okay. And yeah, forgive me for using the she, her pronouns. I would think if Dora was alive today, Dora would be a they. I'm just going to be very clear about it. Okay. But in 1901, that option yeah, wasn't, right. wasn't, wasn't there. And Dora being only 12 or 13, has this is the awakening. I mean, the, 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 the book is about Dora's awakening about their own gender identity. So they're not there yet. So Murph is his adult friend, and he writes for the Evening Telegram, which a paper is still around in St. John's. And he's a lovely fellow. I'm, I'm in love with Murph. I think he's terrific. And I'm also in love with Mary, his fiance. And Mary's okay. also a, a friend. So Mary was, um, because Dora's family, basically her mother had a bit of money, but it's fallen out of the family. Like each generation uh, has less and less money. At this point, they're they're actually in really straightened circumstances. They have no money at all. But because they, they they hung on to the ancestral home that was built by Dora's great-great-grandfather, there's a sense of, of uh, wanting to appear, you know, at least uh, still in the St. John's middle and upper middle class, right? Because they were merchant people, ceiling merchants. So they had had a maid of all work in the house, and that had been Mary. And then Mary, uh, they weren't allowed, they couldn't afford to keep a maid of all work anymore. So then Mary went on and became a maid with the uh, lieutenant governor, who uh, at the time, oh my goodness, I blinked on his name. And he he was a fellow who wrote the uh, Ode to Newfoundland, which is our national anthem. Uh, oh. He was originally from, I think, either Barbados or the Bahamas. He was, I mean, he was a Brit, but, and he was a lovely fellow. I think I've read about this guy, I thought he was great. And when I remember his name, I'll tell you. Um, <laughs> so she became a maid there. And then she has an amazing voice. She has a natural opera voice. And he overheard her singing. And this guy, because he was a composer, this is me, I made this up. I made all this up. He falls in love with her voice, and he gets her actual opera lessons, and then uh, she becomes a kind of a, a, a theater person, a thespian about St. John. So she's, she's moved on from being a maid, and she and fiancé are engaged, and the wedding will be imminent. So basically, Dora's escaped from school for the day. She's rattled down the hill, Prescott Street. And she's down on Water Street, and Murph has has asked Mary and, and Dora to meet him in this uh, 
under construction, uh, soon to be soda and ice cream shop that the building does still exist on Water Street. Fascinating. All right. Well, with that, um, so now here's Kate's story reading for from her new novel, Urchin. Take it away, Kate. I call this meeting to order, Murph announced. Here, here, I shouted. There followed an impressive silence. Murph made his mustache quiver, which caused me to snort birch beer up my nose. Mary laughed. For heaven's sake, Murph, what meeting? The Sardinian has been spotted. She'll be in port by the end of the week. By Friday, Marconi will be in St. John's. A thread of cold went running down my spine. That dream from last night peeked through Murph's words. The ship, the man, the light-filled beings glistering and yammering. Well, we all know that, Mary pointed out. Who is Marconi, I asked. Ignorant child, listen and learn. Murph leaned in, mustache quivering again. Here's the thing. Oh, for heaven's sake, Murph, how can we take you seriously, Mary hooted. Down, Rover, he made a show of taming the beast with his fingers. I remembered then, it had been in all the papers. Marconi was an experimenter with a new wireless communication system called telegraphy. My heart beat faster. What's the thing, I asked. A mustache. No, silly. What's the thing you said was the thing you were going to say about Marconi? Murph sat back and took another swig from his flask. He claims to be visiting our fair isle to establish ship-to-shore communications. I don't believe it. He leaned forward, enjoying the theater of the moment, but his eyes had a serious look I didn't often see there. It's got to be something bigger, much bigger, and he's not telling anybody what it is. Are you saying Marconi's here under false pretenses, Mary asked? Murph nodded. I think this whole thing is a ban. I stared at him. But that would mean he's lying to the entire Newfoundland government. Mary agreed. It beggars the imagination, Murph. Well, think about it, Murph said. He had that station in Cape Cod. It blew down. His station back in Cornwall blew down, too. His investors must be lunging at him. If he doesn't do something big and soon... All the work he's put in over the past years will be for naught, Mary finished. But to lie to the Dominion's entire administration? He's not lying, though. It's not like he won't put in ship-to-shore stations. I think he's trying to build on his past experiments. He's been going for longer and longer transmission distances. He's gotten up to something over 20 miles. Newfoundland is considerably farther from Cornwall than 20 miles, I pointed out. Yes, clever young article. But there's nothing across the sea closer to Cornwall than Newfoundland. He's got rivals at his heels, Mary mused. That Tesla fella in New York was quoted as saying he's got something big in the works, a 100-foot spark, whatever that means, at his testing facility on Long Island. Exactly, Murph nodded. Marconi's got to do something spectacular. And if that thing doesn't involve his station in Cornwall, I'll shave my mustache. Oh, goody, Mary responded. A public demonstration. But you'd want to make sure it worked, I jabbered. Maybe Murph was right. Just imagine if Marconi announced to everybody that he was going to get a signal between Britain and here, and then it failed. He'd be a laughingstock, Murph nodded, hence a motivation for secrecy. What does your editor think? Mary asked. Bah, humbug, Murph admitted. He's got me writing up a story about that poor fellow who plunged from the courthouse scaffolding and knocked his knopper in. I heard about that, I said. He fell down three stories onto the rocks and was still alive when they lifted it up and his hands quivered and he tried to speak and then he died. Barbarian, Mary said. That poor Patrick had a family to feed too. Yes, 
and I was sent by my heartless editor to be there when they brought the body home. Murph looked miserable. Some coddler was supposed to send the priest to break the news to the wife, but that never happened. So she comes out, takes one look, and starts battering at the unfortunate's corpse, shrieking like a banshee. But how was she supposed to feed his brats now that he was gone? The children bivering and bawling. They had to haul her off her man, and her still screaming that she'd bring him back alive to kill him again. Good Lord. How are you going write, to write that one up, Murph? I inquired. Oh, something like the scene at home was, let's say, heartrending when the wife and six children saw their breadwinner brought home a corpse. I whistled. That's good. Don't whistle, Dor. You're not a sailor, Mary admonished. But about Marconi, Murph continued, he's got the two Roberts in the palm of his hand, and the governor has offered up whatever resources he needs. And here's the thing Dor wants to know about. And he leaned in again, mustache quivering. His station in Cornwall, on a point called the Lizard, he built that up rather quietly. But I have it from a source in London that the place has an electrical transmitting apparatus of 30 horsepower. 30. There's got to be something big on the go. Mary sipped her birch beer, a speculative look on her face. So what are you thinking? Because if I know you, Murph, you've got some kind of harebrained scheme. Murph clutched his heart. My lady. Out with it, Murph. Well, he's bound to call a conference. My editor has asked me to be at the Cochrane Hotel when he arrives. Oh, can I come? He took another swig from his flask, the golden nectar from the family of Marconi's mother. What's that, I asked. Jameson whiskey, Murph belched. Murph, said Mary. Please excuse me. Naturally, I want you to come, my darling Mary. You can charm people into talking to me, else they will avoid me, like the plague. He stared at the draped windows as if he could see through the sheets and over to the south side hills and beyond. I need a spy, he muttered. A spy, I thought. Whatever for, Mary asked. Someone Marconi won't suspect. Someone who could spend time with him during his experiments and then report to me. What was this energy surging through my body? A spy. Someone nobody suspected would make the best kind of spy. Murph, Mary exclaimed. Are you giving me an assignation? Murph looked revolted. Never, no, Mary, as if I do such a thing. I was thinking more along the lines of asking the telegram errand boy, but he's hopeless. A child, a boy. Yes, I could see why Murph had had the idea. Hopeless how? Murph sighed. He is, to be frank, a complete idiot. I've even taken to delivering my own dispatches. Can't get an address straight. Idiots don't make good spies. Boy would be best. I wasn't one, but I wasn't an idiot. I was, what was I? I had never felt like a girl. And I knew with every fiber of my being that I wanted to do this thing. To meet Marconi and be a spy for Murph. My heart began to race. What about me? My voice came out like a death rattle. What about Chador? I cleared my throat. <clears throat> I can be your spy. As I said it out loud, the idea seemed bright and hard and true as metal. Er, you'd pretend to be the telegram errand girl? There's no such thing as an errand girl, I said scornfully. Nah, I'd be a boy. What? They were both staring at me as if I were a bedlammer. I'd pretend to be a boy. Now, I don't, Mary began. But Murph was looking strangely at me. Your voice is rather, you know, low for girls. I seized on this. The choir teacher at school says I sing like a crow. Go home out of it, Murph, Mary rapped. You're drunk. 
I assure you, my angel, I'm as sober as, well, given the state of our colony's justice system, I will not say. No, Dor, you'd never be able to keep up such an elaborate charade. See reason, my darling. And he'll be experimenting with electricity and then, and well, who knows? It could be dangerous. No, Mary, please, listen. I suddenly wanted this more than anything. I haven't got a thing here. I puffed out my concave chest. I'm skinny as a skinned rabbit. The girls in school all say so. So does mother. I'm a late bloomer. That's what they all say. Words tumbled out. I hardly knew what they were. I could do it. I could. And I know how to shit, swear. And Jesus, Mary, and Joseph, I've got more chaw than a sheep's head. I can do it. Mary threw Murph a troubled look. Look what we've done. And besides, she'd miss school. She. The image of myself as a telegram errand boy was so entirely vivid that it took me a moment to know who Mary was referring to. Murph considered. What about your parents, he asked me. Could you get out of the house without them worrying? No problem, I said. No, it wouldn't be, Mary said. I worry about you in that house door, rattling around there and nobody paying attention. But the pair of you, see reason, you'll never pass for a door, a boy door. Why not, I asked belligerently. Well, you're too small for one thing. And you have the most beautiful big eyes, and, and, well, really, it beggars belief that you could suddenly become a boy and fool the world. And if Marconi discovered you, who knows what he would do? Call the police, quite likely. She turned a severe expression on her fiancé. Anything to get a story. Is that it, Murph? Murph looked ashamed. You're right, of course, Mary. You always are. Sorry, Dor. I let myself get carried away. But what about your story? To my horror, my eyes filled with tears and my lips trembled. I'll find another way. It's grand of you to offer door, but Mary's right. I can't accept. I cast a beseeching gaze at Mary, clasping my hands. I tried to come up with some stunning logic, some persuasive reason for this plan to work, but all that came out was a whisper. I can do it. Outside, the short December day was drawing to its close. Electric light poles, their web of wires carving the sky, started all at once to light up. No matter what Mary said, the hard brightness of the idea shone in the air before me. I could become this boy. I could. If I had anything to do with it, my life was going to change. So this next excerpt is a little further along in the book. And basically what Dor did was she was with her dear friend and secret, like, deep, deep, deep crush, Claire. Claire's older brother, Clinton, uh, has outgrown his Sunday best. And Dor tells Claire about this, this idea she has to impersonate a telegram errand boy. And Claire gets her to try on as Claire's idea. So try on Clinton's old clothes. They fit her. She looks terrific. And she feels like herself for the first time, seeing her reflection in the, in the glass of the window, nighttime window. And so she says, decides she's going to just spring in on Mary and Murph uh, at the telegram. And if she can fool them, that she figures they'll, they'll probably let her go ahead. So she does that. And sure enough, they have this first moments when they, they meet her and they don't know who it is. They think it's some boy. So then they agree to let her come to the press conference at the Cochrane Hotel where uh, Marconi is uh, about to announce everything. So that's this next excerpt now, about a, about a quarter of a way into the book, maybe a third. My excitement grew with every step toward the Cochrane Street Hotel. I would meet Marconi, a famous man who is going to change the world with his invention. I tried to call up everything I knew about Hertzian waves and contemplate the vast global implications of wireless telegraphy. But just as much, I had to admit I was excited to meet an Italian. I'd never seen one before. Maybe he'd be dark. Almost certainly he would be. Dark hair and eyes, at the very least, like me. The steps of the hotel were blocked 
for word of the famous guests had run through town. Murph pushed through, greeting many of the onlookers by name. Mary did the same. Did they know everybody? It was always like this with them. You couldn't get anywhere for talking. Despite the crowd, plush carpet and wood paneling soaked up sound like a sponge. Everything felt hushed, poised on a knife edge. I'd never been inside a hotel before. I gawped at the vast brass chandelier hanging from the hallway ceiling, admired the elaborate paneling. Murph led us down the hall to a big room, double doors flung wide. We were just in time. The Minister of Marine Fisheries was beginning a speech. I craned my neck trying to see, but it was impossible in the crowd. Something else was said, imperceptible, but it initiated a ripple of good-natured laughter. Just made a hash of his name, Murph muttered, getting out a pencil and pad. Oh, dear, Mary sighed. Murph began a process of using his elbows and muttering, press, press, to edge through the crowd, getting us closer to the front. The minister went on enthusiastically outlining the benefits of Marconi's new system to shipping. Mary edged ahead, all slipping between a gap that closed in my face, a wall of tweedy jackets. The minister wound down, and there was a brief stir. Next spoke Premier Bond, who had apartments at this very hotel. He noted that although it behooved no Newfoundlander to take pleasure in the filthy weather of another country, there was no doubt that Newfoundland had benefited greatly from a certain violent storm in Cape Cod, which raised a general laugh. We pledge our resources and energies to support him. The room was hot. Speeches seemed to go on forever. I wish I could take off my woolen cap. But finally, there was about a sustained applause. A man began to speak. It wasn't loud. Everyone piped down. The voice had an easy, pleasant quality. It somehow conveyed authority. You wanted to listen to it. It was him. It must be him. But the voice was disappointingly English. It was no different in accent than that of countless British officials or my teachers at Spencer. I strained on tiptoe, but an awful length of a man towered in front of me, and I was packed in too tight to get past him. The voice thanked Premier Bond and the Ministry of Marine and Fisheries for inviting him to this wonderful island dominion. It spoke of investigating the possibility of setting up wireless stations to help reduce the number of shipwrecks, something he had only moments ago been discussing with the inspector of lighthouses. My mission, the voice continued, still sounding entirely unforeign, is to eventually establish stations along the south coast of Newfoundland, thus enabling incoming vessels to more quickly communicate with the mainland. Upon the morrow, I will investigate nearby sites and select one most suitable for my experiments. He went on to thank various people, most especially Premier Bond and Governor Boyle, for making his arrival so pleasant after what he admitted had been a horrendous crossing. Welcome to Newfoundland, someone called out, evoking laughter and a general rumbling cheer. The volume of chatter rose. Bodies started milling about. I could now slip between groups of conversationalists, gradually sidling to the perimeter of the room. No one paid any attention to the boy in the flat cap. Nobody at all. If I'd been in my girl's clothes, I would have been remarked and ejected from the room at once. I look like a boy, I really do, I exulted. If anybody asked, I'd be Jack Kelly, telegram errand boy. That beautiful lady is my sister. Just ask her. From the sidelines... I caught sight of that beautiful lady at last. Sir Cavendish Boyle was bending over her hand and kissing her fingers. The two of them laughed, and then I scuttled along the wall to see. He led her over to another man and made what I judged were introductions. The other man was, oh, I couldn't see through the cursed crowd. In any case, Mary's colossal hat quite blocked the view. Was it Marconi? It must be. Drawing a bead on said hat, I plunged into the crowd once more and made it through. There was Mary gazing at Mary, 
was a man named Marconi. I knew him, or at least I knew that energy, that tightly drawn cold vitality, for it was the figure I'd seen in my dream. I looked up at the slender man, maybe a shade under six feet. He wasn't as handsome as Murph, but he was elegant and well-proportioned. His eyes, delivering me a crushing blow of disappointment, were gray-blue, and his hair was a dissatisfying light brown. His skin was almost as fair as Mary's. The most remarkable thing about him was that he looked completely unremarkable. There you are, Mary exclaimed. Signor, please meet my brother Jack. Jack, shake Mr. Marconi's hand. Now, nobody had ever suggested I shake hands with anybody, never in my life. Nervously, I screwed my cap even more firmly down over my hair and held out my hand. Marconi gazed at me, barely taking me in. But his grip was strong, and I made an effort to squeeze back, thinking this was what a boy might do. Pleased to meet you, sir, I managed. I was just telling Mr. Marconi that you'd be an able errand boy for his work. I'd love to, I exclaimed. Wait, was that too girly? I mean, it'd be an honor, sir. Marconi's eyes moved restlessly about the room. How many of these junkets had he attended? Surely hundreds, maybe thousands. Wherever he went, people would be eager to meet him. They'd offer to help. They'd want to be involved in the glory. Must be irritating. I wouldn't let you down, sir, I hackered. I know every business in town, and, and I take direction. I'm bright and, and strong, and, and, and Mary here can vouch for me. Marconi's gaze wandered back to Mary, and his vague look focused. If Madam Mary can vouch for you, why then, we will take you on. He bowed slightly, never taking his eyes from her face. Wonderful, senor, Mary said. You hear that, Jack? You start tomorrow, senor. You certainly aren't wasting any time. I do hope you have time for pleasure as well as work. Always. It does not do to waste time in work or pleasure. There was something hard and brilliant about him when, like now, his diamond-sharp gaze focused on my friend. I revised my previous opinion. He wasn't disappointing. He was fascinating. Unassuming, unsmiling, yet coolly confident, he made me feel sweaty and messy and needy and loud. A precision in his consonants, and also the scent of him, slightly spicy, soap and pomade, coffee and smoke, proclaimed him a citizen of the globe. The crystal glass of the chandelier above him tinkled, as if echoing his words. I noticed he had a red silk pocket square poking out of the top of his breast pocket. King of diamonds, indeed. He belonged to every place, or perhaps to no place at all. You are listening to author and theater artist Kate Story reading from her latest novel, Urchin. Thank you so much, Bill. This third and final excerpt uh, is a short one. Home life for Dora isn't 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 all that happy. Uh, it's it's a it's a cold house. The the stress of poverty is telling on her parents' marriage, and even more than that, her mother. You know, she's the sole survivor. Uh, Dora, she's the only child, so survived seven uh, pregnancies. So that's just you know been heartrending for her mother, who who has these terrible mood swings. But she's also a brilliant and capable woman. And on her good time, she is midwife uh, to the entire south side, Lower Southside Road and out to Fort Amherst. 
And so she gets called out fairly often to be a midwife. And she was called out before this excerpt, which isn't unusual, but it is something about a bothered door. She could tell there was something up and she couldn't hear a voice, just the knock on the door, three knocks, 3 a.m. And, and then her mother, something about her mother's voice. There was something odd about it. And their mother hasn't come back or sent word. And that's unusual as well. And then finally, she convinces her father um, that there's a problem and a search party is sent out. And all they find is her mother's uh, a red sweater. And so her father's inconsolable. He believes that she's fallen off a cliff in the fog or something and, and that it's his fault uh, for not having, you know, seen her to this, this, uh, this job. But uh, Dor has a feeling there's something else. We've also met already, but not in much detail, a wonderful character, the Reverend, who's a, a tiny person. And he often wears a mix of, of clothes, like often beautiful gowns, but with a top hat and a tail coat. And uh, he attends any funeral of importance in St. John's. The Reverend is there following along. He's based on a, he's got an amalgamation of a number of actual characters from St. John's history. And the night before her disappearance, Dora's mother told her that the Reverend lives just down Southside Road uh, at a place called the Old Man's Beard, which is a, a place that's still there. So this is Dor, uh, you know, the mother's disappearance. Time felt to me now like a great ocean. Our old house, that creaky, swaying ship of Theseus, sailed upon it, sure as a frigate sailed over the face of the grandfather clock. But could there be different currents running through time? If one thing could be changed, if I hadn't let that girl burst the buttons from my dress, say, or if my father hadn't been logy with drink, would a new current come into being, a new wave, carrying time and our house off in another direction? Would my mother still be at home? Was there another tide where my mother would walk up the steps right now, having only lost her old red sweater? Previously, my little stream of time had been a thread. One thing happened and then another, all in a line, like the string of pearls around the reverend's neck. Now the necklace was broken, the pearls scattered and lost in the depths. I could not find them. It was Monday, I realized with dull shock. I should be going to school. The sun was coming up behind the hill. Our house and the south side were still cast in the shadow of that great tour. But on the north side, the city was lit, seashell pink, gold, blue, glittering silver. Rose-colored gulls flew out to sea. The hill loomed, bleeding darkness and expanding density like a tidal wave making landfall. There was a sense of breath held, of the world coming to a stop. And then the sun cracked over the summit, a line of pale, sparkling fire, and everything was limned in brilliance. We'd had a silver thaw, Snow had come down heavy in the night, and then, sometime before dawn, changed to freezing rain. Everything was covered now in ice. I should be on my way to school, not sitting huddled at the top of the Ratlin, looking across the riverhead at the ice-glistered city. I would not be going. Father was in the house, asleep or awake, I didn't know. He was inconsolable. Mother had fallen off a cliff in the fog and the dark, and the sea had taken her. That was his implacable belief. He blamed himself. But then who had come and called her out? I thought and thought about it all through the night. No, I would not believe Father was right, not yet. Nor did I believe those whispers coming from the neighbors, comparing my mother to the, to the chaplain who destroyed himself. She'd been called out and she'd gone, and now we didn't know where she was. But she wasn't dead, not yet. 
The old man's beard was the name for a particular patch of snow on the south side hill. It was in a deep ravine. The sun never shone in it. Long after the rest of the world was covered in green leaves and flowers, ice and snow remained in that long, dark, frozen cleft. You'd be crazy to live there. I decided to climb up the hill rather than walk down the road. The thought of encountering the inevitable neighbors having to endure sorry looks and whispers overtopped me. No, I'd climb the steep slope behind the house and make my way along the hill and come to the old man's beard and, I hoped, the reverend from above. I remembered my father saying, don't go off without bread in your pocket. It was something to do with them, having bread staved them off. Or maybe it was just to have something in case you got hungry. But my pockets were empty. I couldn't turn back now. It was a cruel scramble up the first bit of cliff, especially with the ice. But I knew every foot and handhold. For in summertime, my parents and I would tote a billy can for a boil up, sinking blueberries and partridge berries, crowberries and brambles. I spent many hours up on the hill alone, too, picking berries, making wreaths of daisies and laburnum blossoms and tangles of wild roses, glaring arrogantly over the city as I crowned myself king. Sometimes, pockets bulging with bread and apples, I'd go all the way over to Freshwater Bay, alone, or better, with Claire, and occasionally some other Southside kids. We'd run rampant on the large, crescent-shaped beach boulders, collecting sea glass and skipping stones, getting in the way of the small collection of people who lived and worked there. I was insatiable for the empty green shells of sea urchins. Tests, they were called. I loved setting them afloat, tiny viridescent coracles running races on the tide. I'd bring them back home in pocket loads, piling them on windowsills. Whore's eggs, my father called them. Sea trash, my mother replied, sweeping them into her apron and out the window. But I'd always bring home more. I was fascinated by the shell's cupula-like structure, pale and perfect green, covered in delicate braille. Sometimes they'd still carry vestiges of prickles like oceanic hedgehogs. I'd never seen one alive, although I knew logically that they went about their business in tidal pools and on the ocean floor. You couldn't tell, looking at them, if they were male or female. Perhaps, I considered, sea urchins didn't have boys and girls, or if they did, perhaps they didn't care. A long, smooth, blindingly white slope stretched before me. I went forward on my hands, feet chopping steps. The sound of my boots crunching through ice. How I wish I'd thought to wear Jack's boots. The smell of cold snow, the panting of my own breath, the calls of gulls, all served to ground me. I hadn't slept or eaten, but I felt no hunger. The climb seemed endless, but I was not tired. I chanted under my breath. King William was King George's son, and all the royal race he run, and on his breast a starry war, compointing to the governor's door. Why did that feel so warm rolling around on my tongue? The words themselves meant something dark and rich, thick, dripping, and gleeful. The way Claire said it, Claire... Was it my imagination, or were voices singing, whispering, murmuring around? I looked about. Nothing. Must have been the wind, I thought, although there wasn't a breath. The day was still. I'd come up higher than I thought. The south side was out of, I, the south side was out of sight beneath the hill. It was open country before me, all the way to Freshwater Bay. The ice was thick over the snow here and slippery. I pictured myself losing my footing, falling away. Who knows where I'd land? There'd be nothing to stop my slide until I went off a cliff. I bent over again, walking like an animal. 
Come choose to the east, come choose to the west. Choose the very one that you love best. I was hearing something, a dull murmur. Hello, straightened up again. Nobody. I began to pick my way laterally across the slope toward the narrows. Down on this carpet, you may kneel as the grass grows in the field and kiss your partner as your sweet, then you may rise upon your feet. As if it were my sweetheart's face, I touched my lips to the ice. It did not push back. The murmuring grew louder. If there had been grass, I would have thought it was the wind rushing through, as it was. Licking cold lips, I stood, arms out for balance. I was in a place I'd never seen before. The snow and ice were gone. I stood on green grass, pouring down the slope in smooth emerald tussocks like water on a high river. Strange, tall trees stood around me in a circle. They were unlike any I'd ever seen before, towering above with naked trunks and clusters of odd flat leaves high over my head, obscuring the sky. They flipped this way and that, the leaves, showing one color and then another, unnatural, unnameable colors. The smooth bark was pale green with knots all the way up every trunk. They looked like the faces of old people, and that talking, murmuring all around, felt the hair on the back of my neck rise. It was coming from the trees. The ground seethed beneath my feet, the tussocks shifting like bodies stirring below the grass. Was that my name? Had somebody said my name? And in that moment, I lost my footing. I was sliding down and down, head first on the icy crust, no trees above. The blue sky shook and whirled. I flailed my arms and hands, kicked with my feet, trying to break through the ice. One heel managed to catch, and I wrenched around sideways, momentarily halted. Then my foot slid off the edge, and I was off again. Pounded with my fists, kicked with my heels, I yelled. Then there was a tree, not one of the strange ones, but something old and bent and leafless and coming up fast. I was headed toward it. I would hit it. I screwed my eyes tight shut and flung up my arms. There was a sound like a train and a bright light. And nothing. Now you've done it. I lay in snow. I was so cold. One eye didn't want to open. With the other, I saw a crow. It stood on the ice, not an arm's length away, moving its head about as it gazed at me. It ruffled its feathers and half raised its wings. It had one white feather on each pinion. You've done it indeed. Darkness took me again. That was great. Thank you so much. Thank you, Bill. Of course, people listening to reading want to say, and then what happened? But <laughs> you won't tell us, and I get it. One question, if I can ask you, is something we didn't talk about before you started reading. But it's, you know, these days, the supernatural is just not part of daily life for us anymore. You know, we're surrounded by uh, you know, mundane existence, our cell phones, our schedules, our laptops, our social media accounts, our anxieties about money, our health, our to-do lists. So what do, what do readers and listeners need to understand about the tradition of the supernatural in Newfoundland at the return, during the turn of the last century? Well, honestly, the stories that I drew from are in my living memory, a lot of them. I mean... That scene I just read where she's, uh, you know, in the ice and snow on the hill. Right. And then she finds herself in a strange place. My father actually had that experience twice. 
Um, and he wasn't a, I would say dad was probably, I think he would not, you know, he's not still with us, but he wouldn't mind if I, I said he was superstitious. I think he would agree, but he wasn't a fanciful uh, person. And he had this experience twice and, and it's quite common, you know, being fairy led, I guess is what, what, what people would call it. So I merrily ripped off my father's story there. Uh, I hope he doesn't mind. Um, but I've heard other people talk about that kind of experience. Ah. I mean, you can explain it, you know, hunger or, you know, a lot of people, oh, he ate some magic mushrooms. I mean, I know my father did not eat magic mushrooms. <laughs> um, or these these kinds of experiences always happen in liminal spaces. You know, they always happen. You're not in your backyard, which you know very well. Neither are you in the complete wilderness, a place you don't know. You're either berry picking or you're hunting. You're somewhere that you know the territory but you don't go there every single day. It's not like you know every single rock and tree. And that's where these experiences tend to happen in this sort of transitional space between domesticity and the wild. So that's sort of interesting to me um, on so many levels. Uh, a lot of the other folklore stuff, I mean, I, I read Catherine Briggs's, you know, folklore Bible, uh, the types of folklore. So the midwife to the fairies stories. There's only one recorded midwife to the fairies stories in Newfoundland folklore department uh the folklore department there but that doesn't mean there's only one midwife to the fairy story because it's a very common trope that i think you find internationally and certainly in irish and scottish and english folklore you find it the idea of a human woman being brought to help uh the the wee folk deliver a child and and a lot of the other stuff yeah there's a wonderful book by barbara rietti it's called strange terrain and she she's a folklorist uh in, in newfoundland and she this book, she 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 brought together a lot of the different sort of fairy lores that you'll find. Newfoundland, because we joined Canada in 1949, so a bit later, and we were kind of on our uh, out there in the Atlantic on our own for a bit. So there was this kind of almost rabid response on the part of the international folklore community because when in the 50s and 60s and 70s, there was a sense that there was this authentic. Uh, and uh, white folklore that was going to disappear and was disappearing. And so there was like a race to record it. So while I, I problematize that to some extent, I mean, the, the the collectors were mostly men. I think we're missing a lot of women's stories and also the the kind of excitement around it being white people's folklore. Uh, <laughs> but but still, I'm, I'm grateful that, that it was collected. You know, these stories were collected yeah. and, and there's there's all these archives. And, and literally, it was the students at Memorial University of Newfoundland were told, you know, when you go home at Christmas, uh, you know, you have that aunt or that uncle or, you know, your father, you know, or your grandmother who's known for, for telling these these stories. You know, ask them if they would let you record them. So uh, a lot of these stories were collected that way and still are being collected. There's still people telling these stories. My own feeling, I agree with you about our, our cell phones and our schedules and our laptops and our social media accounts and, and how we, you know, the social media both creates anxiety and then gives us this illusion of soothing it. What are we running away from? So I wonder, I've had a lot of what I consider to be, I mean, I won't say they're tiresome conversations, but because of my first book, Blasted, and now this one, which both have Newfoundland folklore in them, people will say, well, do you believe it? Well, isn't a changeling just an explanation for fetal alcohol syndrome before people knew what fetal alcohol syndrome was? You know, these kinds of conversations. I'm not going to say it's not true that that the folklore arose, you know, like one could say the, the Greek Oedipal myth was about collective guilt about all the babies that the ancient Greeks used to leave, you know, abandoned out on the hillside. But at the same time, I don't find it that interesting a question. Like, is fetal alcohol syndrome actually a more interesting explanation for changelings than the fairies took your real baby and left one of theirs? Is it useful? 
I don't know. I don't know. I, I feel like the supernatural is still with us because there's just way more going on than we understand, you know? And when you think about electromagnetic fields and all this other stuff, I don't want to, I'm not going into an ancient aliens conspiracy theory moment here. I'm just saying there's a lot we don't know. And I feel like these folkloric explanations for experience are as valid as uh, psychological explanations, economic explanations, uh, technological explanations. So I, I guess I would say these stories interest me and I, they're still actually alive. And, and the thing about folklore, and I will, th- I do think the internet is probably killing off folklore faster than anything. At the same time, though, it is a characteristic of folklore that is always on the verge of disappearing. No matter where you are in the world or who you talk to, there's always a sense that there was a golden age of folklore just, just over the horizon, like two generations ago, and it's all just about to disappear. So that's right. still true. So maybe it's not disappearing. Maybe we're just finding it in different places now. So interesting. Yeah. Well, hey, thank you so much. You've been listening to author and theater artist Kate Story reading from her latest novel, Urchin. You can order Urchin through the publisher, Running Goat Books and Broadsides, and they're at runningthegoat.com, and it can also be found through Chapters and Amazon. And, yes, and also also at uh, Watson and Lou in downtown Peterborough on Water. Watson and Lou downtown Peterborough, independent yes. bookseller. That's Woo-hoo! great. Yes. So thanks again, Kate. Until next time, I'm Bill Templeman. Now, after listening to Kate describe so vividly what life was like in St. John's 120 years ago, we have an appropriate piece of exit music. This is the national anthem of the British colony of Newfoundland prior to joining Canada in 1949. This is Ode to Newfoundland. Some days from